Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, Monday afternoon, and since I have time, I'm going to do a talk um, inspired by Ariel. Bam keep telling me about the Queen's uh, funeral I saw for a minute or two. He's really into it. And uh, the British monarchy and the British Empire especially, but from a particular angle uh, of vision. This uh, talk, this podcast is being sponsored by two very good friends, uh, Marge and Michael Steinberg, who had a very nice Hanukkah Zabayas yesterday at their home. It was really a classy affair. And Michael said they want to dedicate the house to basically Torah, Vodag, Milstas, That's what it boils down to. And I think they really will do that. Especially the Torah party's a big learner. And I appreciate the uh, sponsorship. And I do hope that all the uh, the hopes that we all put into this house and their life together there will be a very happy and fulfilling one, which will indeed be full of Torah and mitzvahs. Uh, and it was, it was a very, very uh, nice affair and very appropriate for the for the Sleekas time, for the, for the period before uh, Rosh Hashanah. It's a, it was a very appropriate occasion. Um, there's a lot of people that build big houses and things like that, and it's more Gashmias. And here you could tell that uh, it's not lacking in the Gashmias, but there was a big component of the Ruchnias. Uh, so I do thank them. As uh, I, because... You know, Ari was over helping me do something this morning. In between, he's watching the, we were, uh, uh, seeing the uh, big funeral and all the rest of it. I'm not that much into the funeral. But, I mean, I'm familiar with the British uh, funeral tradition of the royal family and all that. And I know too much, you know. Anyway, so uh, here's what I was thinking. You know, there's a, there's a different ways of approaching historical topics. One is a broad general one. One is a, a national one. And one of them, one of the many ways is a Judeocentric one. Uh, looking from the point of view of the Jewish experience, as Rashi says in the beginning, which is another way of saying that the all of history can be viewed as how does it impact a Yisro. It's a, a certain way of handling, and you can't prove it ever. So it's not academic exactly. Nevertheless, it feels in the kishkas that it's right. At least if you're Jewish. At least you believe in God. And therefore, you don't look at events happening as perhaps a regular, secular view of history, which is a never-ending movie. Everything is contingent. This happened. Listen, I don't know what's going to happen in, in between Putin and Zelensky. Maybe it'll go this way and that, and that'll happen. Maybe it'll go that way and this and this will happen. Let's wait till tomorrow and see what's happened. Today... The Ukrainians are winning. Tomorrow, the Russians are Who knows what will happen the next day? That's one way of looking at it. And then what a historian does, just look back and try to connect the dots. Alternatively, uh, and there are many ways of doing this. Alternatively, one of the ways is to say like this. How does it, how you, when you look back in the sweep of history, you know, has it has affected the Claudius role? Can you see a method in the madness, a divine plan or something like that? Without being overly forfront or uh, or uh, sweetie sweetie, and 
in the particular issue I was thinking of because of the Queen, and now the new King, is the British Empire, which is a very interesting phenomenon because the British Empire, when looked upon historically, is like a balloon. All of a sudden it blew up, and then all of a sudden the air came out. It's, it's quite remarkable. You understand? The Russians built an empire all the way to... Uh, across Asia, you know, to, to up to Alaska. I mean, long ago, and they still have it. Um, there are many other countries. That China has an empire. They're still holding on to it. You know, they conquered this stuff. Tibet and, and these other places, you know, uh, in Central Asia, and they still hold on to it. And have for many centuries. <clears throat> the British Mamish came and went. It has five minutes, as I say, five minutes of fame. When it was during those five minutes, it was extraordinary. But then, like I say, the gas went out of the balloon. And it's most remarkable that it happened this way and that it coincided, or perhaps it's not a coincidence, with a remarkable impact on Claudius Yisrael. I'll tell you what I mean. <laughs> this is a certain way <clears throat> of looking at things. My favorite story along these lines I read many years ago when um, having to do with Denmark and Sweden. If you know your history <clears throat> of... Europe in the early modern period, you may possibly know, I don't expect most people do, that once upon a time, half of Sweden was part of Denmark. The southern half, Scania, you know. So once upon a time, a, a, a substantial portion of the country called Sweden today was part of the Danish kingdom. But a point came in time in the 17th century when the <clears throat> Swedish became the most important military power, believe it or not. Sweden, from Gustav Adolf and afterwards, was a, for a while a big a European power with like the best army or one of the best. From Gustavus Adolphus till Charles Twelfth, for those who care. And uh, you don't understand European history unless you know the geography is always changing, you know. But make a long story short, in the 1650s or 1660s, I forget, uh, the Swedish king conquered uh, the southern half of what's today Sweden, of Scania. And, for, and and busted the Danes, and uh, the the Danish had to surrender it, and ever since then, that whole area is part of what we call Sweden. I bet you most people, even in Europe, don't know that. Not that it's a secret, but you know, basic part of history. So where am I going with this? I remember a story um, from World War Two. You may, I think, many people are familiar. I'll use simple English, even though I'm oversimplifying. You know, the, the Danish rescued the Jews in World War II, correct? I mean, you heard of that, heard of that story, okay? They rescued the Jews in World War II, um, meaning that whereas in other countries they helped the Germans or they gave them over or something like that, or they're, uh, uh, let's say, hostilely indifferent. But in Denmark, where there were about five, six, seven thousand Jews, something like that, they actually, uh, when they heard that the Germans are coming around them up, so the great majority of Danish Jews were... Uh, taken in by the Danes and actually arrested and, and put on boats and sent to Sweden, which was a neutral country in World War II. This is in 43. I think October 43. It was right around Shoshana time. Mom's it's this time of the year. In fact, I had a friend, my friend Dr. Safra, passed away, he says, uh, uh, was Rabbi Bamberger uh, from uh, Copenhagen originally and later in Sweden. And, and then in New York. And he told me, he was a little kid during the Second World War. I don't think he's still here. And and they were the Aguda family in Copenhagen. You know, there was like a regular shul and then a small frumi shul. 
Yekisha place. Um, that's an old story by itself. And the Germans occupied Denmark, as you know. But from 40, 41, 42 into 43, it was not so bad. It was just bad. But then came 43, and at that point, uh, by the middle of 43, they wiped out all the Jews elsewhere in Poland and so forth. And so they said, what about the Jews in Denmark? And his family was one of them. And he said, there was like if I remember correctly, the story told me, it was like Erev Rosh Hashanah, this time of the year, Erev Rosh Hashanah, and um, it was like a knock at the door, and the Danish police, and said, come with us right now, right now, just leave everything as it is, get out of here. And they did. Again, it's a front family, and they got in the car, and they drove them, you know, to, to the seashore, uh, you know, which is the, the straits between um, Denmark and Sweden. They call it the, the Kattegat, the Skattegat, something. I don't know my geography well enough. But if, you t- if, you, if you're if you interested in what I'm saying, to get a map, you'll see there are a bunch of islands in between what you and I call, what we foreigners call Denmark and, and Sweden. And it's not so far, so you get on the boat, fishing boat, whatever, and you go not too far away, and all of a sudden you're in Sweden. And that's how to rescue it, and they didn't get killed. Okay? Now I want to make a point. And that is, this is a story he told me. And... It was, like I said before, it was right on Air Rosh Hashanah, and they just got out of there, and they stayed in Sweden until the war was over. So that's like October 43, until, I guess, May of 45, right when, when Hitler surrendered. I mean, when the Germans surrendered, it was dead. And then the Jews could come back to Denmark after the liberation. The British army liberated Denmark in April, May of 45. Montgomery, you know, and... um. He said, when they came back, I'm going to say something as a praise of the Goyim. Everything was exactly where it was before. In other words, the table was still set. As his mother don't have Rosh Hashanah, the candles were in place. She never got the bench lit because they got out of there. Uh, you see what I'm saying, right? All this stuff was exactly what it was before, which is pretty impressive. It means the neighbors did not rob the apartment. That's a that's a high madrega. You see it? The neighbors did not rob the apartment. Um, and he said when they went to the pantry, it was a forest. Looked like a jungle. What's the shot? The answer is potatoes. <laughs> Get it? If you leave the potatoes alone, long enough they sprout. And next thing you know, it's like sprout, sprout, sprout. It's like a jungle. So the story, the famous story is that it was an old from Jew in Denmark and Copenhagen. And he was one of these guys that was rescued on Air Rosh Hashanah, whatever. And he went over the other side into Sweden. And then he was safe. And then he said, like this, now I understand a, kasha, a theological kasha I've always had. I think I read this maybe in Melchior's book long, long, long ago, where the former chief rabbi of Denmark from the 50s, 60s, 70s. The old Melchior, not the one in Israel. Uh, he wrote it, I think. And he said there was old from Jew and when he landed in Sweden, he said, now I have, now I have, a, I have an answer to the kasha always bothered me. What was that? He says, I grew up a Danish Jew. He was a Shammar Shabbos, a from guy, but he was Danish. And that was, it was really true 
of so many Jews before the First World War and, and those times, the Mamish made it their business to be very, very patriotic. I think you know, even if I don't tell you, the German Jews were very patriotic at the time of the Kaiser. In Austria-Hungary, Franz Josef, you know, they really were. The countries that were willing to accept them, they're very patriotic. The British Jews also, and, uh, and the French and so forth. So this guy was in Denmark, which by his time treated the Jews okay. That wasn't true in history. In the past, Denmark was very bad to the Jews, but not if you lived in Altona. It's, a, it's very complicated. But anybody who's interested in the arcane question of the Danish attitude towards the Jews, you can get a, a famous novel, I forget who wrote it, called The Jew, from 1848. And uh, I think the guy who wrote it was not Jewish, I think. And anyway, you see all the anti-Semitism there. But they changed. By the time you get to the 20th century, they were better. So this from Jew said, now I understand. I always grew up in Denmark. I went to school. And we learned the history. And we learned how half the country, because that's how big southern Sweden was, Scania. He said, that's how, how half the country was lost to the Swedish. And they always said, Denmark is such a good country. Why did you punish poor Denmark? They should lose half the country. You know, to the Swedes. I never could understand it. That's how patriotic he was. But now comes World War II, and now comes Hitler. I see that this is Mishril Yisrael Shenikoresh, Mishril Klai Yisrael, because of the Germans would occupy Denmark, and Denmark would include 50% of what's currently Sweden. The Jews and Amish would be toast, and they'd never be able to get out of there, and they all get killed. So you arranged that King Charles X, or wherever it was back in the 17th century should conquer Scania, so that in the 20th century, guys like me would have a place to run away to and be safe from Hitler. Now, you got to admit, that's a pretty doggone Judeo-centric uh, point of view. Okay? Very Jewish. Now, along these lines, consider well, England, historically, never had a big empire. And suddenly they did. England was pretty much a uh, small country. I mean, it's not tiny at all, but England, historically, was a small country. And to the degree that they were interested in expansion, it was under what you call the UK. Notice they want to take over Wales, which they did in the 13th century. And then up and down, in and out, Scotland, that's a whole Parsha by itself. And eventually Ireland. So, okay, that's that's how they projected their um, imperialism, let's put it that way. And they got away with it. But that's not an empire around the world. And frankly, none of that concerns Claudius Rowe. Whether or not Oliver Cromwell did this or that in the 17th century in Ireland, you know, in Drogheda and all this, you know, what's that got to do with us? However, starting around the late 1600s, I suppose, something like that, uh, middle 1600s, uh, England started to expand around the world. Okay? Now, I'm not going to give a whole arecus on this, but just take it from me that in the 1700s, 1800s, it was crazy. It blew up like a balloon. The British explorers and conquerors and adventurers took over huge parts of the planet Earth, okay? You don't need me to tell you, in North, in North America, originally the 13 colonies were English colonies, uh, almost all of them. And uh, they messed up with the United States. Now, as they got the Americans angry at them, they had a revolution. But they were left with English, and the English had Canada, and that they took to the, to the, Pacific, uh, you know, to the Pacific Ocean. So it's a gigantic area, just a little England, whole guns Canada, plus, you know, the Newfoundland and all that other stuff. And then, uh, for a whole bunch, kind of various reasons, 
uh, already they grabbed uh, Gibraltar during one of the Spanish uh, Spanish Succession War. Just just happened, Derechagav, you know, if you look how it happened. And eventually, of course, they took India. And, uh, you know, when they took India, I mean, that's a huge area. And uh, it's actually the English company, you know, Robert Clive and those guys took over Gansa India, which when I say India, meaning it's bigger than today. It was India plus Pakistan plus Burma. And eventually other areas. This is already the late 17, 18, early 1800s. These are things most people are not so familiar with. Perhaps now that things are more PC and we're having more of the uh, world civilization. It's not the way I was raised, which is very Western-centric. But now the narratives are given, you know, taken to Asians and so forth. So maybe all this is better known. Perhaps yes, perhaps no. But... Uh, uh, every time what happened was England used to get into wars with the Spanish and the French because the interests of England were to maintain a balance of power. It's not the largest country. There are other countries that are uh, large and possibly could be so large as to dominate the European continent and therefore be a superpower and then threaten England. So to prevent this, the basic logic of England was always to maintain the balance of power. So find out which country is the strongest and then team up with the other countries to make sure that that strongest country doesn't come too powerful. So basically, England's policy was to block. You understand? When the Spanish were getting very big, like in the time of Queen Elizabeth the first, so they blocked that by teaming up with others. And in the 1600s, 1700s, when it was France, and France had a shot at becoming superpower, so they always teamed up with others to block France. And it was a very successful policy. Okay? It was a very successful policy. Uh, and as long as England and her statesmen made sure that nobody in Europe got too strong, you could have a continual peace in Europe. That's basically the story of the 19th century. Now, um, you know, Russia was possibly a problem, but you know that's complicated. Now, here's the thing. Uh in, in, as, a, as a byproduct of these wars with France and Spain, the English picked up here and there Carca. They had a war with Spain, they took over this part. They had a war with France, they took over that part. And especially France. Uh, the French used to have Canada, and the English took the whole business over. Uh, the French used to be partially in India. To prevent that, the English took over the Gans India. Okay? Um, and other places like that. So it wasn't part of a deliberate plan. A very famous English historian, it's either Macaulay or Seeley, or something like that, um, he probably silly, said that the British Empire was acquired in a fit of absent-mindedness. I think that's how he put it. Very famous. I Meaning he wasn't part of a plan. You know, the Japanese had a plan. The Germans on it had a plan. The British just, as a byproduct of this war, a byproduct of that war, ended up owning huge parts of the globe. And, you know, they took over Australia, that's the whole continent, and eventually New Zealand. And then after Napoleon, they picked up South Africa, and so on and so forth. So the next thing you know, this little country, because England's not big, owns a huge piece of the world. Now, this only increased in the 19th century because they consolidated, you know, the Indian Empire and places like that, and they expanded into the Far East. That's where they got to Hong Kong, for example, and all that. And uh, it so happened that this was very good for, for the Claudius role. Because wherever you had the British flag, the Jews were not mistreated. And since it's all one economy, because it's all one big empire, you can do very well 
you know, if you're Jewish, locating within the British Empire and going into business and trade. For example, look at these Iraqi Jews that moved to India, like Sassoon or whatever else. You have a gigantic market, and uh, if you know what you're doing business-wise, you become a zillionaire. So this happened again and again, and if these Jews remain from or not from, it's not the fault of the British. They, you know, they could be as, as religious as they wished, you see? And so the result is that wherever you saw the British flag in the 1800s, it was a, you know, the Jews know here it's safe. You know, uh, uh, you don't know how important this was. Think, for example, Gibraltar, which is right near Morocco. You don't know the history of Morocco in the 17, 1800s. Every once in a while, the Muslims went crazy. This sultan and that sultan, sometimes hot and cold, sometimes good for the Jews, sometimes bad for the Jews. If bad Jews, what do you do? One of the places you do is run away to British territory or British ship. Uh, there's a famous story of uh, Nunes, Nones, who was a uh, Murano in uh, Lisbon, in Portugal, in the 1700s. And the Inquisition was hot on the trail. And he made his business, I forget exactly how the story goes, to get on a British ship in the harbor. And once you're in a British territory, they can't touch you. And he said, get me out of here. And that's when he went to Georgia. That's like the first Jews in, in Savannah. So the British were identical with being plus for the Jews. Which is why, to tell you the truth, when the American Revolution broke out, not all the Jews were on the side of the Americans. Some were, that's true. Others were not. It's the same thing as the Goyim. John Adams famously said that at the time of the American Revolution, it was one-third, one-third, one-third. One-third was for the American Revolution. One-third was for England. And one-third was sitting on the fence to see who wins. I'm sure there were about 2,000 Jews total in the whole America at that time. 2,000, it's nothing. I'm sure some of them were this way, some were that way, and some were in the middle. Just to give you an example, there was a Jewish community in New York. Uh, if you know your American history, the British occupied New York for most of the American Revolution after the Battle of uh, you know of New York, of Long Island and Washington Heights and so forth. And those Jews were not mistreated by the British, you see. So it's 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 complicated. Now, England therefore appears on history with a gigantic territory in the late 17th, especially the 1800s, what generally most people call Victorian era. Um, this is uh, huge because it means that this small country now played an oversized role in international affairs. And if they wanted to, they could help. If they wanted to, they could hurt the Jewish cause. And indeed, uh, I'll say it again, Wherever the British set up colonies, I'll give you an example, say next to Yemen. You know, there's two parts of Yemen. Uh, the Yemen that you think of and the other one. The Yemen you think of, yeah, there were Jews there and all that. But next to that is something called Aden. And the British took it over as a colony until the 1960s. And believe you me, the Arabs many times want to make up, if you know, the Arabs many times want to make pogroms against the Jews for this reason or that reason. And because the Britain was ruling there, it didn't happen. You see? Now, in the late 1800s, all of a sudden Africa became desirable. Okay, Nobody wanted it before. In the late 1880s already, all of a sudden all the European countries started grabbing a piece of Africa. So England took a big chalik. And that made it even bigger. So if you get to the world, let's say, in 1900, you know, when Queen Victoria died or all the rest of it, England has like a gigantic territory. And therefore they have gigantic power over and beyond you know, from a small, uh, the, that of a small country. That has affected Jews 
this isn't what enabled or made it possible for England to give Eretz Yisrael to the Jews, which is what happened, which is an extraordinary story. Despite all the caveats and the problems, the bottom line is that in World War I broke out, which was a stupid war beyond belief. Everybody knows that. Uh, the you know They shot the Archduke here, and therefore this happened, and that happened, that happened. And next thing you know, everybody's at war, and England was also at war. And the British had a very hard time fighting the war. And as part of that, part of the politics is the issue of the Balfour Declaration. Whatever the politics is, you have an extraordinary event from the Jewish point of view. One of the largest countries, which has an empire goes from from all over the world, said that if we win the war and we get Eretz Israel, we're going to give it to the Jews in some fashion. No, that's the Balfour Declaration. Now, I know there were complications and the Arabs and the Palestinians. I understand that. With all that, what I just said is extraordinary. It never was in history that a country said, I'm going to take over Israel and give it to the Jews in any way, shape, or form. And we acknowledge that the Jews have a right to this country in any way, shape, or form. And especially a Christian country, the Christians hold it. They're the real Jews. Therefore, if any, Israel should go to anybody, it should go to them. And such a country should nevertheless say, you know, we, we, we recognize that Klal Yisrael has a real right to this. That's what Balfour said. And therefore, you know, we'll, we'll establish a, uh, a national home uh, uh, for the Jews. And if you know the history of the Balfour Declaration, it was the Jews who messed it up. The British were prepared in 1917 to use the following words. If we win the war, we will give Eretz Yisrael to the Jewish state. They were ready to write those words. It was an assimilated Jew and his friends who blocked that. Uh, what do you call Montague? Edwin Montague, who was in the British cabinet. He was Secretary of India. You know, at that time, India was like a, 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 a ministry in the government because they ruled the Indian Empire. And he was a super anti-Zionist uh, Jew, a really, a really genuinely self-hating Jew. His father was a weirdo, Orthodox Shomer Shabbos Jew, but a weirdo and a half, uh, Lord Swadling. And he wouldn't let our hero, he wouldn't let his son marry this shiksa. She was like a famous party girl, Edwina Stanley. I'm telling you, you can have a movie out of this. <laughs> you know, it's a movie. Wouldn't be a from movie. <laughs> and, you know, and he wanted to marry her. I'm not 100% sure why he wanted to marry because he was gay as a goose. But whatever the case is, he did, and they eventually got married, but she had to convert first, otherwise they would get no money from the father. The father left that in the will. If he marries out, he gets zero. And, and he, you know, like all these sons of rich guys, he didn't know how to make money himself. He knew how to live off of Papa's dough. And so, uh, she converted to Judaism. You can imagine how, and she did it through the United Synagogue. I mean, you know, it was a best-in conversion, but you can imagine this party girl, and she's a Stanley, too. If you know the British aristocracy, that's the top of the top. You know, that's the top of the top. Lord Stanley, Lord Darby, these are big mockers in the British aristocracy of old. So uh, this guy, therefore, had, I won't say a love-hate affair with Judaism. He had a hate affair with Judaism. And therefore, he said, no way can you make it that England will give this as a Jewish state. And the Zionists had to fight him. So it was a Jew versus Jew battle. And the compromise that was made was to use ambiguous language. That his majesty government will view with favor the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With all of that, that's 
Clearly, Minishamai, there's no other country, not Germany, not Russia, not France. Nobody would even have a Havamina in a million years to even think of something like that. And what I just described, for better or worse, and with all the troubles, is the foundation of modern Israel. Now, words are cheap, but the Rabbanu Shalom so made it that Britain was on the winning side in World War I. And one of the things the British did, they didn't have to, this is what they chose to do, was to disintegrate the Ottoman Turkish Empire. I'll say it again, they could have gone another direction, but this is what they chose to do. And the Arabs are still angry about this, the Muslims. And the Ottoman Sultan had been the Caliph. And ever since then, in Arab schools and Muslim schools, they'll teach in English had a had an evil uh, plan to abolish the Caliphate and different mess over the Islamic religion. And uh, we're now in, this, in September, not long ago, September 11th. So if you look at 9-11, Osama bin Laden, these guys are still angry. They said they want to avenge the insult by the British abolishing the caliphate, which I can tell you right now, when 9-11 hit and they wrote that, no American or Englishman, no way you talk about it, unless you're a historian. You know, who even knows I'm talking about that? After the First World War, when they ended the Ottoman Empire, so, you know, they abolished the caliphate. But what's no gay to us is, Britain and France divided the Ottoman Empire between them. And Britain took over Israel, Palestine, okay, and Iraq, and Jordan. And therefore, they were they had a biyadam. It was in a position to enforce the establishment of a Jewish state or something like that. And this is just an incredible story. What I mean to say is like this. A second-rate country like England, in terms of its size, shouldn't have been able to have such extraordinary power. And they did, as England enjoyed in the wake of the First World War. This was the 20 years of their maximum uh, territorial gains. From like 1920 to the to the second to the end of the Second World War, those are the years. Think about that. The 25 years or so when England had the maximum territory in Kharkov. Because as a result of the end of World War I, they took over all this huge area of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East, including the Jewish, uh, the, the, the Eretz Israel. Uh, and may I say, they also, as a part of winning World War I, took over all the German Kharkov that used to be in Africa. So England and France. So the Germans, prior to the First World War, had X number of colonies in Tanganyika and in Cameroon and here and there and the other, you know, uh, right next to South Africa, what they call them today, Namibia. They had big pieces of territory. Can you, now here comes my point. It's clear to me, it's the Minishamayan. And by the way, let me add also that, um, you know, uh, the Israeli bought the Suez Canal and Gladstone occupied Egypt. So in other words, they took over the strategic parts of the, uh, of, of the planet. Uh, the Mediterranean, they had a chokehold. If the British control uh, Gibraltar on one side and the Suez Canal on the other side, in order to get in and out of the Mediterranean, you got to go through them. You see? Now, looking back in retrospect, this was all Minishamayim, so that England should be able to withstand Germany in World War I, and particularly in World War II. Can you imagine what would happen if Hitler started out holding whole big piece of territory in Africa, which which they had had 20 years before, okay, 25 years before. Can you imagine how Hitler would have been successful if he had been able to bust into the Mediterranean and do all these other kind of things or get into the Middle East? But he wasn't. One reason Britain was able to withstand the Germans and the Germans should not conquer them now, Britain was not strong enough to beat Hitler on their own. They never were that strong. And Churchill 
knew it, and that's why Churchill was waiting. The only thing he can do in World War II was wait till the Russians and Americans get in somehow or another. And it ha- of course it happened that way. But England was not overwhelmed by Hitler because, first of all, they couldn't cross the English Channel, you know, the Battle of Britain. But second of all, they couldn't... The rest of the world sort of, like, belonged to England. You, you get what I'm saying? There's all the resources of Africa and of Asia and the South Atlantic and all the rest of it belonged to England. Now, even so, they had a very hard time. But can you imagine if they had not controlled all that stuff? They would definitely have gone down because they weren't strong enough to withstand Hitler. Uh, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Consider the following. The Germans took over, I think you know this, the Germans took over the whole of Europe, right? I mean, Hitler either occupied or controlled all the countries in Europe, uh, Central Europe, uh, the Balkans. So he took over Bulgaria and Greece. What's to stop him from driving straight into Israel or to the Middle East, at least, to Syria and Iraq and all the rest of it? Uh, only because Turkey was in the way. And Turkey was you know, always uh, you know, playing defense. Who's going to win? We'll join the winning side. So in those, it was very close to Hitler could have just simply rolled into the Middle East. Had he made the decision, which he didn't do, just to attack and occupy Turkey, they probably could have done it. And then go right there, be in the borders of Eretz Yisrael. Um, it happened differently with Rommel and all the rest of it. But what's the shot with Rommel and battles like El Alamein? The British were able to keep Rommel from the Suez Canal, meaning from getting hold of one of their choke points, one of their strong points, because that would have been the end. So what I'm saying is a small country like Great Britain enjoyed a whole bunch of very unusual international territory advantages, which enabled them to survive World War I and particularly World War II. Being Jewish, I'm more interested in World War II um, in an unusual way. This little island off the coast of France should control Gans, Australia. By 1939, control, in effect, de facto, just about all of, of Africa. You know, um, Mussolini had taken over Ethiopia. But it's too far away from Italy to be able to hold that and reinforce it. The British had territory all around that from their colonies. Uh, Sudan, uh, Somaliland, all that stuff. You look it up on a map. And therefore, the British were able to finish off and conquer the whole Italian holdings in in uh, Africa. It's again and again you saw that their territorial advantages were just built in because of the history of the last hundred and hundred fifty years gave Britain an extraordinary advantage in um, in all these things. Uh, enabled them to survive Hitler. Didn't able to defeat Hitler, but able to to survive Hitler until the Americans and Russians got in. And then they could actually take one and defeat Hitler. So it's a very, very interesting story. And you see it was Minash Shemayim, at least to me it's clear. Because watch this. When Hitler was finally destroyed and killed, and Nazi Germany was totally busted up, and all the rest of it. So the British Empire had served its purpose. Um, may I say, by that time they already had half a million Jews in Palestine. So that was enough to make at least a start for a Jewish state. What did their Bona Shalom do? Comes 1945, and it's all over. 1946... Right away, the air goes out of the bubble. Starting in '46, became the British are getting out of India, which they accomplished, for better or worse, the Indian Empire, in 47, 48, the Burma part. And then, of course, they got out of Palestine, Eretz Yisrael, all, all that stuff in 48. And then it's a litany. 
in 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, little by little, they pulled out here, pulled out here, pulled out here, pulled out there. And everywhere, you know, the British Empire went into a, a, a slow collapse. So the reign of the late Queen Elizabeth II, whose funeral is today, is, everybody knows this, is a reign of a, of a contraction, a shrinking, I won't say a disintegration, but a, a steady shrinking of the British Empire. When she started out, I mean, she didn't have India. By the time she came in in 52, so India was gone, and Israel was gone, and all that stuff. But they still had plenty of Africa and a lot of other places. Uh, and Singapore still, and so forth. Uh, as you know, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, uh, even into the 80s, one by one, it all dropped. This country became independent, that country became independent, and so on and so forth. I say the 80s because they gave back Hong Kong to the China, right? So it's just really interesting that as long as it was necessary to prevent someone like Hitler from gaining world power, uh, and may I also add uh, that there is no way that the Jews would be able to have Eretz Yisrael in any fashion whatsoever had England, with its empire, not been strong enough in the 1800s to block Russia. This is a separate story. Uh, the Russians, by the 1800s, were powerful enough, and Turkey was weak enough, that if you just left things to their own, Russia could have conquered and totally taken over the Turkish Empire, which means the Gansu Middle East. There was no military power strong uh, of the Muslims able to withstand that. As a matter of fact, one of the things Russia did in the 1800s was take over what we call today Central Asia. You know, the stands. Tajikistan, Pajikistan, Pushistan, whatever. All those places. And they were Muslim areas and they fought like crazy. They fought like hell. And then the Caucasus and the wars are pretty doggone savage. But guess what? The Russians could be savage too. And they get exterminated sometimes like the Chechens and the, uh, what do you call it, Circassians. So... If it was, according to regular Der Chateva, if I can use that term, uh, had things taken their regular path, uh, no country in Europe would have had any uh, pretensions or possibilities of stopping the Russians from occupying the whole Middle East in the 1800s. Now, can you imagine what Eretz Yisrael would be like if Russia, which is a very religious uh, Russian Orthodox country, would have taken over the Holy Land in the 1800s, they would turn into one big giant Russian church. I, I know what I'm talking about. Uh, th th that was a big item of them. And there is no way they allowed the slightest Jewish thing there whatsoever. You know what Russia is like. Tsarist Russia. Uh, this is a country that gave the Jews zero rights, ever. Now, the only thing that blocked the Russians in the 1800s from accomplishing their ends and taking over the Turkish Empire was Great Britain. This is the history in the 19th century, what used to be called the Great Game. That's the term they gave it. In which the various British um, governments, at least when they were awake, not when they were sleeping, uh, constantly blocked the Russians. The two big names who really busted the Russians again and again was Palmerston and Disraeli, <laughs> if you know how it works. Uh, if it was not for Palmerston, not for the Israeli, the Russians would have everything. Now, how can a small country like England 
physically small country. Take on Russia, which was so gigantic. And yet, you know and I know, in the 1850s, under Palmerston, they fought Russia and beat them in the Crimean War. Russia had to surrender to beg for peace. So it's it's very interesting the way the Bundeshalm set up the world. May I also say that Palmerston, of all people, uh, actually was a Zionist, <laughs> if, you, if you want to get down to it. You know, Lafitte Madrigoso, in, in his time, uh, in the first half of the 19th century, uh, he said English should help the Jews. For He had his own reasons, but I don't care what the reasons are. At a time when everybody else was anti-Semitic, Palmerston was actually philo-Semitic. It's most unusual. And Disraeli is a complicated story, but really, 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 if you know who Disraeli was, who had a whole mixed-up attitude towards Judaism because he was born Jewish, but his father had him converted when he was bar mitzvah because the father had a fight in Shul with the uh, with the board of directors. Only the Sephardi can do that. You know what I mean? Dad, I'll fight with that hunter. Are you mess me up? I'll screw you all. I'll, 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 I'll um, convert my children. But whatever the case is, with all of his mishigas and if you know closely the biography of Disraeli, who was a, a, a member of the Church of England, uh, when his guard was down and he thought it was safe, he would talk about the fact that he said, oh, Eretz Yisrael should be a Jewish state and we could set up the economy this way and that way. I think Lord Stanley or Darby, I forget which one, were, were uh, authentic. You know, they write about it in the diary that Dizzy, you know, let his guard down and, and said what he really feels, which is he wants Eretz Yisrael for, to be a Jewish state. Uh, and he, and Disraeli had visited Palestine when he was young. So, you know, it's a very interesting subject. All I'm saying is that you see that to block Russia and later to block Hitler, it was necessary to have a, an artificial entity called the British Empire. Once that was long, no longer necessary, and once uh, Nazi Germany was destroyed, uh, and the, the job of preventing uh, Russia from occupying the Middle East, was picked up by the USA, Britain went out of business. The British Empire ceased to exist. So nowadays, in the year 2022, at the end of the reign of Queen Elizabeth, when people will say, oh, she started out with this business, and she ended up with much smaller, uh, you see, a Jew will look at this in a very interesting fashion. You understand? You see the Yad Hashem, in which he, you know, uh, what's it called? Marriage, Shol, Vayorad, how's the expression go? You know, he, he raises up the ones he wants to raise, he knocks them down when he's finished with them. It's a game, right? Uh, we don't know the game exactly. And, you know, there can be a Holocaust on it, so it's not pushing. But the broad view that I just laid out for you, of which Queen Elizabeth's reign is such an interesting example, because she started out with this territory and she ended up with that territory, you know, with much less. So she symbolized, among other things, among other things, some of the shrinkage of the empire. Uh, Churchill famously said in 1955, they used to write books about the expansion of England, but in my old age, they have to write about the contraction of England. Um, and you see, at least I would argue, that you see that there's a method to the matter. There, there, there's a hand behind all these events. And... Uh, you know, let's put it this way. Uh, if Britain's still in an empire and they had to, you know, accommodate to the feelings of all the others, I'm not exactly sure how they would be with the Jews. That's a, that's a complicated question. But uh, their great day, their five minutes of fame, this is my, my point, but this I end. 
the the five minutes of of imperial greatness that England had coincided with number one the protection of the Jews and number two the return of Klal Yisrael to Eretz Yisrael, which say what you want was facilitated by them. Nowadays, because of the Arabs, all the rest of us, they have to poo-poo and knock the whole thing down. I understand. But at the end of the day, um, England did something, the British Empire, during their five minutes of existence, did something that the French Empire never did, or the Russian Empire, or the Spanish Empire, and so on and so forth. So the British Empire, you know, had its its uh, raison d'etre, as the French say, a certain reason. And once they were making that reason, then it wasn't necessary for them to be an empire anymore. At least that's what it seems to me. And that, in my opinion, is an interesting way to, a very Jewish way of sum up um, the reigns of uh, Queen Elizabeth and her father, actually, to get down to it. Because this began in George VI. Uh, when he took over, they had big, 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 you know, all those territories in the Middle East. And uh, I think that's just very, I think that's, that's, uh, something that's very interesting from the point of view of the way the Rabbanu runs the world. And therefore, this little talk I just gave is not out of place in the days before Rosh Hashanah when we're about to have all these prayers in which we say, Hamam lech malachim v'lo hamalucha. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.